I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, in particular, the second chapter of Genesis. By way of reminder, we are walking our way through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis this fall together. As we near the Advent season, that will bleed its way into a look at the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. The first three chapters of Genesis, the second two, or the last two chapters of Revelation certainly are connected thematically. Scriptures understand those two sections as something of bookends that give us so many foundational truths about our life. And we will walk through these together. And tonight we come to Genesis chapter two. Sermon text is verses four through verse 17. And as has been our custom in these weeks together, I want to read you a reading from the book of Hebrews as well. Um, a New Testament reading that can be paired to help us make sense of this reading from the Old Testament. As I've mentioned, the, the New Testament writers assume you're making those connections. Um, so it's important that we see these themes together. So Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse four. Here's how it reads. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and Oxstone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then for the book of Hebrews, just listen to these words from Hebrews chapter five. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would do the thing that only you can do, that you would be here among us, Lord, breathing 
your spirit's life on our dry and weary souls. Lord, that you would, by the power of your spirit, illuminate these words that are in your word. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, that you would take these words that I prepared and that you would use them, Lord, to give us great hope and assurance in our Lord Jesus tonight, we pray. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin tonight with three confessions. And the fact that I'm going to begin with three confessions is a clue to you. It's a hint to you that tonight's sermon and this text in particular, it's supposed to be pretty deeply challenging to you and me. Confession number one, I want to admit to you all gathered here today that I don't personally, speaking for me here, I don't personally like to have to need God. I mean, don't get me wrong. I sing the songs like you do, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you, and that is true for me. But I'm just telling you tonight, I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like living in a needy place before God. I wonder if you know what I mean. Second thing I want to confess to you is that I am tempted to believe. It's like a daily struggle for me. I am tempted to believe that I'm supposed to be somewhere else have a really difficult time with being present where I am, both on a Tuesday afternoon, um, in the city I live in, the house I live in, the vocation that I have. I I always am tempted to believe that I'm supposed to be somewhere else. You know, they say the grass is greener on the other side, but I'm just telling you for me, the grass is not just greener on the other side. It is like the most brilliant emerald green, like hills of Ireland that you've ever seen. I wonder if you can relate with that. Third, third confession. I really, really struggle to believe that obedience to God would be the thing that would actually give me life and joy and peace. Now, I begin tonight by confessing those things to you because I think it's a helpful way to think of our passage for tonight. Because in our passage for tonight, these verses from Genesis 2, we actually get a picture of what human beings are supposed to be. We get a picture of what being an image bearer is supposed to be like. We get a picture pre-fall, before sin enters the world, of what a human person It's supposed to do and feel and be. And if this sermon is about who we are supposed to be, then there's an implication in there that you and I are not fully what we're supposed to be. So this text, as I've walked through it in these weeks, is going to challenge us deeply. But in the midst of that challenge, if you can hold on tight, those convicting truths If you can hold on tight, I want to show you, it's going to be a meandering road. I want to show you this one main idea. And it's the main thing I want you to hear. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is what you have to hear. 
We're gonna walk the road of this passage in order for me to show you by God's grace that in Jesus's life, you will find yours. In Jesus's life, his human life, you will find your life and what you're supposed to be. So the way I wanna go about this, if you like outlines in advance from preachers, I know that I do, I wanna know where this thing is going. Um, First of all, from this text, we're gonna talk about these three features. Feature number one is this idea of dust and breath. Dust and breath. What is going on in this text with regard to dust and breath? Second thing we're gonna do is talk about place. Place. What it means according to the scriptures to be placed. And then thirdly, I wanna talk about the tree, this mysterious language of the tree. And we'll end talking about the tree by talking about Jesus. So here in this passage, we get a zoomed in look at the making of people. So let's take a look. Verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So, so far in Genesis, On each day of creation, we see that God speaks and then something comes into existence. And God speaks and something comes into existence. And God speaks and something comes into existence. But in this chapter, when we zoom in to see the way in which he makes people, we get a different picture. See, on the sixth day of creation, from Genesis chapter one, we learn that God decides to make people in his own image. That's kind of like the broad view, but this text zooms us in and tells us what did it look like when he made people? What was it like? What happened? And what we learn is that God becomes more deeply personally involved when he makes people. Here in verse seven, when it says that the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground, the word formed here is that word of a master artist or craftsman. It's the idea of working with the hands. Imagine a potter who's working the clay as it spins into different shapes. That's the picture here. God's getting personally involved to shape and form this creature. And we we learn that God apparently does this forming work with dust. He begins to shape and form and then breathes onto the dust and therefore gives his life to this thing. And when he breathes and gives his life to this thing, it's no longer a thing, it's a person. People aren't things. When he breathes onto this dusty, when he breathes into this dusty thing, when he breathes into it, it's no longer an it. It becomes a person, in this case, a man. And the idea of this dust being breathed into is supposed to show you something of of intimacy and tenderness and care. 
This creator God wants to literally share his life with this creature. He wants to give to this creature his very life. He breathes into this dust and he animates this creature. Not in the sense of a cartoon drawing, but he, he makes it alive. He becomes a living creature. And by the way, this is something of a side note. That idea of, of the breath of God being, being the thing that gives life, that's not just something God does one time. The rest of the scriptures, the entirety of the Christian theological tradition as it reflects upon this idea of God breathing his life into us would show us that that's not just a one-time thing, that's an ongoing sustaining thing that God does. There was a time when you were born and God breathed his, his life into you and you became alive. And you will be alive for as many times as God wants to breathe his life into you. Ongoing, ongoing creation in the scriptures is always an ongoing act of God, a sustaining act of God, moment by moment by moment. The scriptures would lead us to believe that the very breath that I'm pushing through my mouth to speak words and the breaths that you are breathing right now are breaths that were literally given to you by God for that moment. That is actually what it means to be alive. That was just a side note. Now, why dust? Have you ever thought about this? Why dust? I mean, this is God we're talking about. He can create from anything that he wants and he has no lack of material. He's got an entire created universe now with all sorts of materials. Why dust? And it's interesting because dust in the Bible will take on a kind of life of its own. Dust in the Bible becomes a major thematic piece of the scriptures. Dust has a sort of... Um, logic to it throughout the pages of the Bible. It appears in so many places. It's dust is everywhere in the pages of the scriptures. So throughout the pages of the scriptures, here's some of what dust is a picture of. Okay, I spent all this week reading about dust and every time dusty things occur in the Bible, I'm gonna give you a sample. So in the Bible, dust is a picture of fragility. Okay, it's, it's the idea that we are fragile, if we're made from dust, we're fragile. In other words, we are not as strong as we think we are. In the Bible, dust is a symbol of our mortality. We are alive for a little while because our dust is breathed into by the breath of God and then we're not. It's a symbol of mortality. In the scriptures, dust is a symbol of humility People will often lower themselves before God and put dust on their, themselves as an act of humility and, and contrition and even repentance. Dust in the scriptures is the ultimate, the ultimate sign of our dependency on God. You and I were made to be dependent on God. Dust in the scriptures is often a picture of God's compassion in the sense that he remembers that we're dust. But this idea that God would take dust and breathe into it gives to us a massive, massive clue that you can't miss about what it means to be a human person. I'm gonna tell it to you. You and I were made 
to live in a moment by moment, breath by breath, dependency on God. You're meant to occupy a frail body, a limited body, a body that has a, some, some, doesn't have full capacity. It's a fragile thing. But to depend upon God moment by moment by moment for everything that you need. We are supposed to lean with everything that we are onto God hour by hour, moment by moment, breath by breath by breath by breath. And I've already confessed to you, I don't like living this way. And it doesn't help that you and I live in perhaps the hardest culture ever to live this way. I mean, think about the things that our culture prizes. Think about the the stories we tell. Think about the kind of mythical heroes of our movies. They are these rugged individuals that overcome their own individual challenges to become independent. And And our culture values and prizes independence almost above anything else. And I'm just telling you, the pages of the scriptures will look at that way of thinking and laugh because we're not that. And this is again, pre-fall. We weren't supposed to be that. We are supposed to depend upon God every single moment, breath by breath by breath by breath. And I wanna just take a moment and just apply this to your heart in some ways. First thing, if your life feels somewhat tonight like a hanging by a thread, Moment by moment, Lord, I need you every hour, not just as a song, but I am serious. Then what I want you to know is that you have not missed a memo. You're not doing anything wrong. It's supposed to feel that way. Second thing that I want to say to you as gently as I possibly can. God will often be at work in our life in order to make us more and more dependent on him. And when he's doing this, this is one of, according to the rest of the scriptures, one of the sweetest ways that he loves us. He wants us to depend upon him. He delights in us needing him. He's not annoyed by it. He wants it. Third thing to just apply this to your heart, living your life in such a way where you're always trying to assert your independence from God or from the people around you is unbelievably exhausting. You're meant to need God and to need others and to give it up and receive those gifts. Now, it's hard to live this way, but God promises to sustain moment by moment by moment. Finally, and I don't know any other way to say this to you, I I did not believe what I'm about to tell you 10 years ago. But this idea of being a human person, living in a moment by moment, hour by hour, 
breath by breath dependency on God can become a way of living that you can actually learn to like and enjoy. Even when hard, it is the way to live. I did not believe that 10 years ago. I sort of believed it five years ago. I believed it a little more two years ago. I believe it a little more tonight. Now it's an acquired taste. Dust and breath. Now let's think together about place. And let me explain what I mean. Verse eight and verse 15. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east and there he planted I'm sorry, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So the idea here is that God takes this fragile thing that's no longer a thing, but it's been breathed into and now it is a person. He takes this dusty, fragile person enlivened by his spirit and then he puts him in a particular geographic place. In particular, in a garden in order to work and tend and cultivate that garden. As we talked about a few weeks ago, even these words to work and tend to cultivate, this is more than just simply farming. It's the idea of obedient service to God in such a way that keeps evil forces out. Just like a garden must be weeded or the weeds will take over, Adam was supposed to be in this place, tending and cultivating and seeing fruit blossom and participating in God's world like we talked about a couple weeks ago. But he was supposed to be in a literal physical place, a garden. And it's a particular geographic place. That's why all this rivers talk. When I read the stuff about the rivers, were you thinking, what's that about? Well, the idea of what that's about are these are particular geographic places that the readers of this text would know. Yeah, okay, the Euphrates. Yeah, okay, that's the Tigris. That's kind of east of Assyria, the Euphrates. It got, so it was in a actual geographical place to work and to tend. Why? What's the deal? And right here we have another massive clue about what it means to be human. According to this text, we are intended to dwell, to live in actual concrete places, carefully tending and cultivating fruits in that place. Okay, let me put it to you another way. Human persons are supposed to be where they are. They're supposed to be present in a a body in one place. Human beings are supposed to be where they are. And you're looking at me like, okay, but but let me just just talk personally. Can, Can I even tell you how often this week I tried to be physically in more than one place at once? I mean, I ran around all week long. Okay, I know I'm supposed to have this meeting at the church, but oh my gosh, I think I have a doctor's appointment in Gardendale, but my meeting's in Homewood. 
Um, I wonder if I could leave my meeting early to get to my doctor's appointment in Gardendale. And oh my gosh, my kids have sports practice. Okay, which kid has sports practice when? What uniform did he have? Nobody tell. How, how do I know? Um, but I can like do part of that practice and go to this other place. Human beings are supposed to be where they are. And I have this tendency to not actually be where I am. That's just a personal example. We are supposed to dwell in places, cultivating their fruits over a long haul. Now, I want to say what I'm about to say as gently as I possibly can. Okay, I want to tell you the truth about some things, but I want to say it gently because the things I'm about to say, I see it in you because I see it in me. Okay, I want to to say again that we live in probably the hardest culture ever to live according to this way of being human. We live in a very transient culture. The demographic of people that mostly occupy our church are the most transient of all those people. Yo, I was um, talking recently with a friend of mine who pastors a church in New York City, and his church was nine years old. And he was telling me that at the end, he planted this church in New York City, at the end of year three, not one person, not one person, not one person that was there in year one was there in year three. At year six, not one person that was there at year three was there in year six. At year nine, not one person that was there at year nine was also there in year six. In other words, the church had turned itself over three entire times in nine years. And I was reflecting with this and and that guy and and with this mentor and this mentor, because he knew I was playing a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And he looks at me, he goes, let me warn you about something. That is not a New York City phenomenon. That is an everywhere phenomenon. This Polish philosopher named Zygmunt Bauman that I like to read talks about how as people, as people, as human persons, we want to be tethered. We want to be known. We want to be connected so, 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 so badly. And at the same time, everything in us wants to cut the ties of those connections so we can be free. I'm just gonna keep going here for a minute, okay? I I see it in me. I'll never forget at the beginning of Grace Fellowship being planted. I was having this conversation with this older man at another church. And and this older man at this other church had been a part of something like a Grace Home group. It was like a small group before small groups were a thing. By the way, small groups have not always been a thing, okay? Okay. But he had been meeting with this consistent small group of people from his church. And he had been meeting with them at the time of him telling me this for 40 years. Basically every week for 40 years. And I will never forget as long as I live what he said to me. He said to me, in passing, as a throwaway kind of comment, he said, yeah, I'm not sure that we really ever tasted the fruit of that to about year 23. And he wasn't joking. I'm going to say that again. I don't think we began to taste the fruit of that until year 23. 
Now, at the same time that I had that conversation, I had a conversation with someone else who said to me, yeah, I'm not really connecting at my home group. And I said, oh, really? I'm sorry. Can I help? And they're like, I don't know. I'm just not connecting. I've been there three times. And they weren't joking. They weren't kidding. They were serious. And I want to ask you something. If the, the, the home group you were with Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday of this week, if you knew you would meet to, with them together almost weekly for 40 years and would not begin to taste the fruit of that till you're 23, what would your reaction to that really be? Because I, I think two things happen in your heart when you hear that. Number one, it sounds overwhelming nauseating, you want to get out as quick as you can, and it stokes the deepest longings of your heart simultaneously. To be rooted in a place over the long haul. The monks talked about taking a vow of stability, staying somewhere. And y'all, I'm speaking as someone who was at a pastor's conference last week and hearing about these different cities that every pastor's in and beginning to sweat and thinking, maybe I'm in the wrong place and I should go to one of those places. I've been in pastoral work for almost 17 years and I've had conversation after conversation after conversation about people just not connecting at church and wanting to talk to me about why they're not connecting at church. And those are the same people who are literally never physically there on a Sunday. I'm not saying that you can't ever move anywhere, okay? I've moved a few times. Out of state, within Birmingham. But what I'm saying is that the decisions we make flippantly to uproot ourselves are not neutral decisions to our souls. And even when God uproots us, he uproots us in order to plant us, right? The exiles were brought into captivity and, and they even knew they were going home, but they were supposed to plant their life there and work it and be fruitful. I'm saying that there is a certain kind of something that you long for deep in your souls to be known, to be fruitful, and you will not get that if you're just up and gone all the time. That's place. Okay, I'm sweating up here. I'm like sweaty down my back. Thirdly, tree. I know this is a lot, y'all. Tree. Verse 9, verse 16 and 17. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and great good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The words that I have just read to you now for the second time are some of the Bible's most mysterious words. What are these trees? What's going on here? Why is it that God's first command that he gives in all the Bible has to do with eating? Now that is another talk for another day. 
The Bible's really a story about eating. Did you know that? That's another talk for another day. And we're told about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is going on here? Well, again, again, finally, it's the third massive, massive clue about what it means to be human. Okay? You and I were not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we're supposed to be blissfully ignorant of evil and totally reliant on God for life and joy and peace. In this command, this command, hey, it's, an, it's, a, it's a generous command. You have an entire known universe. You can eat of any tree that you want to eat. There's one tree I don't want you to eat of. I don't want you to have to know things I don't want you to have to know. I don't want you to have pains in your heart that you're not supposed to have. There's one tree. There's, there's, tr- tr- my, my boys told me, they, they, found, they have this weird but true book, and my boys tell me there's something like seven trillion trees in the United States. I, I can't be true, right? But there's, but there's trillions of trees, and there's one not to eat of. This was a command. We're supposed to read this as a command for flourishing. This is a command for them to receive life. This is a command for them to have pleasure and delight. This is a command for joy to be theirs for the taking. I mean, it is, a, it is a command that was going to give them everything that they ever could have wanted. It was a command to give the man things that he did not even know that he wanted. It was a command of generous abundance, eat anything. But this idea that there was a tree not supposed to be eaten from offered a choice. And it is the choice of the scriptures and it is the choice of your life and mine. We can lean on the good graces of God and find in obedience to God life and joy and peace. Or we can be independent, we can be self-made, and we can live under the pressure of constantly having to evaluate all our choices and suffering under the weight that we suffer under every day of something we were not supposed to be. We could graciously accept and lean on God for provision. We could choose our own way. And it gets ahead of us in the story, but Adam chose wrongly. And so do I. And you. And we. So finally, it's almost as if we need someone, a capital S, someone, someone named Jesus who would step in and show us who we're supposed to be. And it just so happens that this Jesus in the face of this tree has a tree of his own. This is Jesus I'm talking about, the one that the Apostle Paul will begin to talk to us about him being like a new Adam. In other words, he shows us what we're supposed to be, but he more than shows us He gives to us his very life. In Jesus' life, you will find yours. Let me work it back. Dust. Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ subjected himself to the frailty of our human situation. That he entered into a finite, limited frail human body. He was a helpless baby 
The book of Hebrews tells us that he did this in order that he could sympathize with us in our weakness. Like a good high priest, he can deal with us gently. He can deal with the ignorant and the wayward gently because he himself is beset by human weakness. Apostle Paul says that he emptied himself and he entered into our dusty, frail situation. This is the heart of the gospel. And when, you, and when you read the gospel stories, you'll notice that Jesus, Jesus Christ, is led moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by God's spirit. He doesn't have food and, and a little boy has to bring fish and loaves. He's not sure where he's going next or where he'll lay his head there. In a moment by moment by moment, hour by hour way, he's a dusty man being led by the very breath of God. In Jesus's life, you'll find yours. What about place? The gospel stories make an enormous deal of place that Jesus needed to go down to be born in Bethlehem, that he was from this podunk town called Nazareth. The most meaningful human life that there has ever been was a life in which the person, Jesus, did not travel very far at all. A very limited geographic area. The furthest Jesus probably ever traveled about from here to Montgomery. In other words, he worked and cultivated and tended in the place that he was placed, his faithfulness is your faithfulness. His life is your life. In Jesus Christ, you find your life. Finally, what about the tree? In some of the most mysterious words that I've already read from the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things that he suffered. In other words, Jesus Christ, this is Jesus we're talking about, had to choose to walk obediently. And part of him walking obediently is that he became obedient, the Apostle Paul tells us, to the point of death, even death on the cross, in order that, according to the book of Hebrews that I've just read for you, he can give life to all who obey him. In Jesus Christ, in his life, you find yours. All that Jesus has, you have. Everything that Jesus possesses, you possess. In his life, you find yours. And he has given his life that you might be alive, frail and fragile as you are. And the Bible teaches us that as we cling to Christ, that the spirit of God can make us alive and refresh and restore us. And he can, as we cling to him, the spirit can make us alive even tonight. In Jesus's life, you'll find yours. Let's pray. Lord, as we've confessed, we are not what we're supposed to be. But you have made us your own. In your life, we find ours. You have given to us your very life. Lord, forgiveness of sins. 
grace that is sufficient in every weakness. Lord, strength that we need, comfort that we need to be faithful in the places you've placed us. So Lord, tonight is a story of rejoicing in what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that the truths that we have seen tonight would transform our hearts, our lives, our souls, our minds, even our bodies, to the glory of your name. Amen.